Today's section comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 42. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, so that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they were and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is our fifth um, installment in our series on the day of Pentecost. And sadly, it'll be our last. We will be finishing out the day of Pentecost today. As I have said from the beginning, Pentecost is about the harvest. In the Old Testament, it was about the celebration of the harvest. And it it was a remembrance of when God spoke to his people at Mount Sinai. In the New Testament, it's about a spiritual, it's about a spiritual harvest of 3,000 souls um, coming, to, coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. Peter is there. Peter is there. So are the apostles. So are our 120. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking in tongues. 
There is a sound like a rushing wind that happens, and tongues of fire rests on each of them. This gathers the crowd, but the, ga- the gathered crowd, when they hear the speaking in tongues, when they understand it in their own language, they mock. Peter there, standing with the 11 disciples, heralds a message. And by the time he is done, they go from mocking to asking, what must we do? How do you explain such a change? Sometimes we talk about Holy Spirit power and we talk about miracles and stuff, but really the power that, that is in then these things is in God's word itself. Jesus gave a parable about, about a rich man and a man named Lazarus, who happened to be the same name as one of his friends. And he talked about both dying and Lazarus, even though he was poor, even though he was a beggar and the dogs themselves pitied him, went to Abraham's side while the rich man went to hell. And the rich man in hell begs Abraham to send Lazarus to preach to his, to preach to his family members. And Abraham, which is Jesus speaking through Abraham, says that if they don't believe the prophets, they won't believe somebody coming to them. There is something that is happening that we cannot see. The Holy Spirit is doing an incredible work. And who is the Holy Spirit using in this? For this sermon, it is Peter. I've said before, I said last week, that Peter in the Gospels and Peter in Acts, they seem like two different people, even though they're the same person. Some of Peter's hang-ups will come back, but we see almost a completely different person. Two monumental things had happened to Peter before the crucifixion till now. One is he's seen the risen Christ. And two, he's been baptized in the Holy Spirit and in power. And now he is Jesus' witness. You know, God is sovereign. You know, we say that a lot. What that means is that God can do whatever he wants, and then all creation has to do whatever God wants. And we understand that with God the Father. And when I say that God is sovereign, we, all, we, we think a lot about how that is God the Father, but it also pertains to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is that we cannot manufacture a move of the Holy Spirit. We cannot force the Holy Spirit to do something he's not other inclined to doing. This has caused many to try to simulate the Holy Spirit, and it always results in heartbreak. It results in shipwrecked faith. On the crazy end of the spectrum, you have charlatans who pretend to be moving in the Holy Spirit, yet use trickery. This is Simon the Sorcerer is such a man who tries to buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He wanted to buy the Holy Spirit from the apostles. You have more contemporary examples like Jim Jones and the People's Temple. We know this most as we know that situation as when somebody says they drank the Kool-Aid. They literally drank the Kool-Aid. And it's considered one of the um, largest mass suicide in American history. I would actually say it's one of the greatest acts of mass murder. But I'm not going to go into that. What I want to go into is how did he bamboozle so many people? Is he faked miracles? People can fake miracles. Let me tell you how he did it. Not that this is the trick of every trade. Is that he would palm a piece of rotten chicken guts. Sorry, don't worry. Lunch is hours away from now. Um, And they would have, you know, three-hour-long services. They'd be in time of prayer, and they'd be praying for somebody. The person's not even coming up for cancer. He would palm the, the chicken guts, and then while he's praying for them, he would drop it in their mouth. And when they spit it up, he'd say, that's cancer. I just saved your life. Yikes. 
That desire to have, the desire to be seen as some holy man or prophet has destroyed so many people. And that is one example, obviously, on the extreme end. But there's much more common uses of people trying to do this. For instance, you have the pastor in the 80s. It was found out that in his earpiece, his secretary was reading to him the prayer cards he had people fill out. And he was pretending that he was hearing from God when he was hearing from the prayer cards that people had filled out. Today, you even have a person who calls himself a prophet who just goes on people's Facebook and tells them what he finds there. All that to say this, you cannot manufacture a move of the Holy Spirit. You can try to do something that looks somewhat like this, but you will not get the same long-lasting results you see here in the book of Acts chapter 2. This is a power that you cannot manufacture. I said last week that when reading Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, many scholars, many pastors have made this, this, same, this same statement, which is, There is something changing in the ministry in the New Testament. Before Peter right here, you would have rabbis who would gather together disciples and he would would teach the disciples and the idea was to make the disciples like the rabbi. Jesus did this, of course, and that's what he wants to do with us. And Jesus said, call no man your father and call no man your teacher. I'm not your teacher. I am a herald of Jesus Christ to connect you to the true teacher so you might be like him for this generation. Peter does not teach as one, as one who is looking to make others become like him, but to make others become like Christ. You think of Paul Revere. Paul Revere, when the British were coming, didn't go to every town, set up a coffee shop, and have a discussion with people. No, he told them, the British, has come. The British are coming. The British are coming. That is New Testament spirit-filled ministry. It is the person who heralds the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. New Testament ministers are heralds and ambassadors because we do not seek glory for ourselves or to make others like us, but to make others like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When the Holy Spirit shows up, things change. I said before, we try in vain to simulate the Holy Spirit. We try it when we depend on emotionalism. And it's not bad to be emotional. In fact, when God moves on our heart, we're going to be emotional. But there is a way in which people manipulate through emotions. They share stories or songs and things like that to try to, to, try to manipulate people into a move of the Holy Spirit. This is not the same thing. There's theatrics, sound, and lights. Um, what we have here in the New Testament Pentecost is so counter to so many churches today. No one's even playing piano. There's no light. There's no fog machine going on. There's not even somebody on the piano, and I even do that. No, it is just the Holy Spirit moving on hearts. Now, there was amazing things happening, tongues of fire, a mighty rushing wind, and the response to the crowd of that was mocking them. However, by the time Peter is done preaching the word, these people will be cut to the heart. And it won't be because Peter is eloquent it's not because he is wise, but it's because the Holy Spirit himself is speaking through Peter. They are cut to the heart, and not Peter, but the Holy Spirit's to blame. Peter's message, all of last week was just the intro. In Peter's message here at Pentecost, we have a good rubric, we have a good example, a good outline of New Testament preaching, in that we have an introduction. 
All of last week was Peter's introduction. He's explaining what is going on, but he is also teeing up, he is also teeing up the main thrust of his message. The very last verse he quotes of Joel is verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a question in that verse that nobody dares ask. You know something, in, in the Old Testament, God would tell them his name, and he had a proper name as well. In fact, we, tell, we call it today the Tetragrammatron, which sounds like a transformer, but it's not. It just means four consonants. Is, uh, the, the consonants Y-H-W-H. We, we understand that be pronounced today as Yahweh. And it's interesting, that is seen as the proper name of God in the Old Testament, but it's not really a proper name, but it's just another description. Because God doesn't give him, he doesn't give them his name. And in, the, in our Bibles, it is represented by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Moses was told, well, who shall I say sent me? And God tells him, and God tells him, tell them, I am sent you. He then tells the people, he is. And that's what Yahweh literally means. It doesn't mean I am, it means he is. He is, period. He is the one who sees you. He is the one who redeems you. He is the creator and maker of all things. He has all authority, all dominion. He is the only one worthy to be praised. He is, period. And then Peter comes along on the day of Pentecost. He, he, he reads from, he probably quotes from Joel, and he reads, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the name of the Lord is Jesus. The name of the Lord is Jesus. Peter could have been stoned for this. When Jesus told the chief priests before Abraham was, I am, they tried to stone him. They wanted him dead for this. Peter, without the Holy Spirit, could have very much looked forward to a similar kind of death that Stephen would die. But he declares to them, and the main thrust of the rest of his message, my message for you today, the name of the Lord is Jesus and he is the Lord of life, number one. He is Lord and Christ. And finally, what all of the day of Pentecost shows is that he is Lord of the harvest. Let's go into it. Going from verses 22 to 28, he is Lord of life. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus wasn't a victim. When I was in high school, I'd been saved only a couple years. And um, I, I don't know, it must have been a friend's house because it was cable. Um, but anyway, it was the History Channel. And they were, doing a, they were doing a series on Jesus. And I was like, it's about Jesus? I want to watch it. And I, I didn't know that there would be like perspectives around it. So I'm like, okay, this is great. And there was something one of the experts said that really bothered me is they said that Jesus was a victim of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And like, I understand like, historically, that's why they crucified a lot of people to keep the peace and all that. But that's not, Jesus was not a victim of the Pax Romana. Every year around Easter, you will see series on who killed Jesus. Bill O'Reilly wrote a book called Killing Jesus, answering the question, who killed Jesus? A lot of that stems from a very anti-Semitic attitude in the 20th century, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof. You may remember and cringe when they call the Jews Christ killers. So there's this 
attitude of trying to defend. And so they'll be like, no, no, it wasn't the Jews. It was the Romans who killed Jesus. And it's like, yes, but also the Jews and also you and me. Who killed Jesus? You and me. Let's go even deeper. No one killed Jesus. He laid down his life so he could take it back up again. Last week, of Peter, last week Peter's message, he's giving, the, he's giving the structure for what he is preaching later on. This intro, the body, and, and so on and so forth. He tells him, he, he, Jesus is not a victim. It was by the preordained plan of God. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. This is something Peter does at the beginning, and he does it here. It's a good little transition. We are going from one idea, which is, this is what's happening right now today. People are speaking in tongues because the Holy Spirit's been poured out, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved. He's now transitioning to, who is the name of the Lord? He said before, men of Judah. Now he's saying, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He is starting to uh, lay the groundwork. What they've seen, what they've heard, they have seen Jesus perform miracles. They've seen Jesus perform, in fact, certain kinds of miracles that other people don't perform. Here's something that may blow your mind, or you may already know it. But in the Old Testament, God does healings through prophets, through many other people. You know, one miracle he doesn't do in the Old Testament He never opens the eyes of somebody who is blind. He never opens the eyes of somebody who is blind. Yet in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Peter's reminding them, when you started hearing about people receiving back their sight, leopards cleanse, all these things, that was to tell you the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. The Lord is here. Um, the Father proves the Son. In verse 23, it's a very interesting verse because it's a very challenging verse because it deals with um, human free will and God's sovereignty. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility has been a topic of theological conversation for ever. I don't know. Probably since there was more than, more than two people. Peter tells them that Jesus was validated by God the Father and that he was crucified according to the plan of God, but he also tells them, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Where does God's sovereignty end and man's responsibility begin? Are you really at fault if you are just living according to, God's, uh, to the plan of God? People have made doctrines, dogmas concerning this. To this, I would simply say exactly what Peter is saying here. This is my paraphrase. God is in complete control, and you are completely responsible for your own actions. And nobody who's ever lived had got to call, who got to say to God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, you made me do this. No, he didn't. You made that choice. Just because he knew you'd make that choice does not mean you did not make that choice. 
Judas is a perfect example of this. Jesus will say in Matthew 26, verse 24, The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him to have not been born. Judas doesn't get to say, well, I was just part of God's plan, and that's why I did this. No, he made the choice. God is completely sovereign. It is definitely his plan, but we are completely responsible for what we do. You know, it takes a yard of guts to preach to a group of people, you killed, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. A lot of preachers today who claim to be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit would not dare make that statement to their church conference, especially not on TV. And that is a shame because that is Holy Spirit preaching. That is prophetic preaching. We get things confused because we try to label things, not according to how the Bible labels it, but the way we kind of come to label things. So we think prophetic preaching, we think of somebody who is making all kinds of predictions, and maybe there's healings going on and things like that. But the Bible actually tells us what prophetic preaching is. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and this is something I was dealing with this week because I always saw it through the lens of the way I grew up in different churches I was at. We had prophecy in our church, and people would say all kinds of things. But you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 about prophecy? If somebody comes in, they're prophesying about their sin. Oh, that's different. That's a lot different. Peter's sermon here is prophetic because it is about the reddest cardinal sin of all of humanity, and all of humanity is responsible for it. You may come in here Maybe you're thinking, oh no, people might know about me, so I have to put on this holier-than-thou attitude. All I have to do is look at the cross. You think I'm perfect and righteous? Look at the cross. If I was the only person who ever lived, the cross would be necessary to forgive sin. I can't be good enough on my own. My sin is so heinous, it took Christ dying. So yes, I am responsible, and I can preach to you, even though you weren't there that day, and neither was a lot of the people Peter's preaching to. And I can say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is so much, you know, something we, we have a pejorative, you know, when we say, you know, we say somebody's going to hell, right? You know, go to hell. And it's, and it's, it's very disturbing. Peter ups the ante right here. People's concept of hell is not very definite, whatever. You killed the author of life. That's what he says in chapter 3. You killed the author of life. This takes a yard of guts. It is guts that Peter did not have before this time. When he was asked if he even knew Jesus, he denies him three times. But Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, prophesies about the reddest cardinal sin of humanity. You crucified Jesus. This is our example of prophetic preaching. He is the God of life. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 24 really gets into Jesus as Lord of life. God raised him from, raised him from the dead because death could not hold him. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, says that death has been swallowed up in victory. And that is, that is the perfect way of seeing it. Death couldn't handle Jesus. When death tried to take a bite out of Jesus, it choked to death. 
And one day, all who believe in Christ will be raised on that final day from the dead as he himself was raised. David Gusick says that the word for pains here refers to birth pains. It was not possible that the chosen one of God should remain in the grip of death. The abyss can no longer, can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her womb. So for Jesus, the, womb, the tomb was a womb. In verses 25 and t- through 28, we see the quoting from the psalm here. It's personal for Peter. Peter probably read in Jewish school Psalm 16 many times. Maybe you've been there where you've read a verse many, many, many times, but it's not until you live it towards you actually understand it. Psalm 16, he is now living, he has now lived. Psalm 16, as he quotes, as uh, Peter quotes from it, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Obviously that day that's being put to test as he tells him, you crucified Jesus. I will not be shaken. Peter's not a superhuman. No, no, he failed in areas of courage before. Paul the Apostle, we sometimes see him as the great Paul the Apostle. You know what he says in Ephesians chapter 6 after telling us to put on the full armor of God? Pray for me also that I may preach Christ boldly. Please pray for me also so that I preach Christ boldly. In my flesh, I don't want to tell you hard things. I just want to tell you things that you like. I just want to tell you things that make you think I'm a good guy. So pray for me that I may preach Christ boldly as I should. Peter is living this because he is not shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwells in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hadis or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. Peter lives this because he saw the resurrected Christ go up into the clouds. He is living this because the Holy Spirit now lives inside of him. He's living this because he's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is why he can proclaim that Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament and not bleak. He is also Lord and Christ. Verse 36 includes that phrase right there, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name and H isn't his middle name. It means the anointed one. It comes from the Septuagint of the Greek translation of the Old Testament when they were translating the word Messiah. The one, the one the people of Israel had been waiting for. The one who would redeem them. The one who would save them. It is why the angel said his name will be Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. They didn't realize how he would save them. And at the end of verse 36, Peter says, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Unfortunately, people want their own Christ. People want their own Christ, then and now. So many will say they believe in Jesus, but their Jesus looks nothing like the Christ of the, of the scriptures. They want and need a Savior, but that does not mean they necessarily want Jesus. Many want a political Jesus, who is very much the champion of whatever political crusade they are currently about. I remember me and Becca, we were first married, and we lived in Chicagoland when Obama was elected. And I don't know what it was like around here, but like there was like this excitement, like all of a sudden everything was going to change overnight. And I remember that lasted for about a week. And then the next week, everybody was incredible depression 
People's heads were down. I remember the day Obama got elected and this gal's in Target. I was working in Target. And her like little kid is like, Obama, Obama. And she was just like, I, I just can't stop him doing that. And I'm like, yeah, right, lady. Like you didn't tell him to do it. <laughs> Many want a political Jesus. And you know, we could go down the list, Republican, Democrat. They're not Jesus. They're not the Savior. They can do nothing. Many want a political Jesus. Others want a pop culture Jesus. One who's going to be their buddy. One who's going to be cool and who's cool with everything they do. I was told, not that I watch it, but I was told on The Bachelorette, this uh, gal said, it doesn't matter how many people she sleeps with, God will forgive her. That's a pop culture Jesus. That's a Jesus who's just about you. It's just another idol that we just call Jesus. That's not true Jesus. It's not the Jesus who lifts us up to live in holiness, who frees us from the bondage of sin. It is an idol. Others want a Messiah who will destroy their enemies and lift them up where they think they belong. I was just told this before I came in, but I had also heard it as well, double confirming it. But um, Chuck Schumer told to the justices who are looking to strike down Roe versus Wade, that they are, they are sowing to the wind. He was quoting from Hosea. That's blasphemy, first of all. And they're, they're striking down a law that, that kills children? No, no. That is, that is blasphemy. But there is this thing of wanting, we like God of vengeance if it's a God of vengeance against our enemies. And a God of mercy towards the people we like. How incredibly amazing it is when you dwell on this, that Jesus said to love our enemies. Many people have many other messiahs, salvific works that they believe in. And some call it Jesus, some don't. But all do not know the real Jesus, for the real Jesus would disappoint them. You wonder why people cried for Barabbas and not Jesus on that day? Because Barabbas was the messiah they wanted, but Jesus was the messiah they needed. In verse 29 and and verse 30, uh, Peter reminds them of a very simple truth. This is the truth. King David is dead. He's dead. It's like the opening line of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt what, um, what's, uh, whatever about that. The register of, the, of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Peter in, 20, in verse 29 is making a similar statement. King David is not the Messiah because King David is dead. The Messiah is not dead. Messiah comes from David, verse 30. He comes from the line of David, but is not David himself. The Lord, the Lord, the true Lord that we are talking about would not see corruption. That's what David prophesies in Psalms. I don't know if David knew or not that he was predicting the resurrection, but Peter knows he was predicting the resurrection. That God would not abandon his holy one, his anointed one, the Hadith. Let me explain Hadith real, real quick. Um, people normally pronounce it Hades. Becca pronounces Hades. The proper pronunciation is Hadith. Not to be confused with uh, the guy with his head on fire that James Wood voiced in uh, Disney's Hercules. Um, the the uh, Greeks would name their gods after concepts. For instance, um, Athena is named after the Koine Greek word aletheia, which means absolute truth. And it's because instead of being born from the loins of Zeus, she's born from the mind of Zeus. Um, so anyway, all that to say, Hadith is not referring to 
Hell is not referring to the uh, Greek God. It is just the Greek word for the place of the dead in general. That God would not abandon God. He would not abandon his son, his anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord, to the grave. What's hard about this is, unfortunately, some English translations have mistakenly translated Hadith into hell. In our concept of hell, the place of eternal torment. So this gets confusing. So the Apostles' Creed, when you recite that, in fact, we just recited that at a funeral the other day, it says he descended into hell. The Bible never says he descended into hell, but into the place of the dead, Hadith. Um, that's just an aside for you um, as we go on here. In verse 33, Peter explains full circle of the events that day. Jesus has been risen from the grave. He ascended to the Father who is in heaven, and he is now pouring out his Spirit. Verse 34 and 35 are very, they, they should seem somewhat similar. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If this sounds familiar, maybe you just read the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 22, verses 43 and 40 through 45, Jesus says, He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit... Let me just stop right there. Jesus' view of Scripture is that while God uses human beings, it is the Spirit who writes the Scripture. I said before, if you want to walk by the Spirit, read what it says and, and do it. Obey, and you will walk in the Spirit. Spirit-filled preaching, as we see with Peter on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell down, he is expositing, he's explaining from the Scriptures. Let me go on. How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Peter is making the same point that Jesus Christ himself made. Because Peter is not teaching his own doctrine, but Christ's doctrine to these people. He says in verse 36, let, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Twist in that blade again, just to remind them. Lord and Christ. He is Lord in that he is ruler. He is Christ in that he is Savior. He is Lord in that he is sovereign. He is Christ in that he is the Messiah. He is Lord in that he is all-powerful. He, he is Christ in that he is all-loving. He is Lord in that he is all, has all authority. He is Christ in that he has all anointing. He is Lord in that he is the owner. And he is Christ in that he is the redeemer. I could go on and on and on. And in our process of becoming more like Christ, we have, a, we have, we have that point where we continually make him Lord and Savior in our life. He, Christ, and, Christ and Lord in our life. Areas of disobedience we give to him in areas we, we need hope, we need salvation, we look to him. Let me go to the most mundane thing, just from my own personal life. I remember when God revealed to me that I was using food like a savior in my life. That when I needed comfort, when I needed encouragement, I would just turn to food. And I always thought the term like being addicted to food was, was silly, and then I realized I was living that. And I was looking towards other things to be my savior. When we decide, I don't care what the Bible says, this is what I'm going to do, we are not looking to him to be our Lord. There are a lot of sins listed in the Bible. Lying, stealing, murder, I could go on and on and on. But you know what the greatest sin, the ultimate sin that will ultimately damn you, 
related to the unforgivable sin, but the very essence of what the unforgivable sin is, it's this, rejecting Jesus, rejecting such a great salvation. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Great Divorce, that, that in the end, there are two types of people, those to, who, who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. In other words, there are those who bow the knee to God and those whom God says, do what you want. And that is C.S. Lewis's definition of hell, just people doing what they want. He is Lord of the harvest. He is Lord of the harvest. From 36 all the way down to the rest of the chapter, this is revealed in what Christ does that day through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples that the fields are ready for harvest. We are about to see how ready they are, that 3,000 are added to their number that day. How? It wasn't Peter's speaking skill. It's the unseen work of the Holy Spirit. God has baptized the apostles and disciples in the Holy Spirit, and now they are seeing that power for themselves. You know how this could have played out? How this could have played out if the Holy Spirit wasn't moving and people were not being accepting of the Holy Spirit? is we can see that a few chapters down in the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr of the early church. I believe he was preaching according to the Holy Spirit, but the people were not receiving it, so they stoned him to death. And if you truly are telling somebody the message of the cross, few things should happen. One of three things should happen. If they are a believer, they are rejoicing and glad and encouraged. If they are an unbeliever, either one They'll pick up stones to stone you because the cross is an offense to those who are perishing. A cross that is not an offense is a cross that's emptied of its power. It's a, it's a person who's too cowardly to say, you crucified Jesus. Or the person gets radically saved. And it's not because of anything about you. You're so charming and, and charismatic. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit because the Lord of the harvest has sent you into his field to bring in his crop. That, how this could have played out, many different ways. But this day, 3,000 people are added. In verse 37 is something I think very interesting. Verse 37, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's like something monumental had happened. They had seen a miracle and they mocked it. But they hear the preaching of God's word and they're cut to their hearts and they say, what must we do? You know, Peter, he always wanted to be the guy, right? He wanted to be the greatest. When people came, when people came to take Jesus, Peter took out his sword. He probably wanted to kill them, but he wasn't a very good swordsman, but he did use the element of surprise and got the first blood, so good on him. He cuts off the dude's ear and Jesus puts it back on. Peter wanted to cut people up, of course, but he wasn't able to. With the power of the Holy Spirit, not by sword, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he cuts to the very heart. And they ask, what must we do? And you know what he tells them? He doesn't say, sign this card right here or pray this prayer. He says, repent and be baptized. It is because the faith required for salvation is already in their hearts because they're asking, they are hating their sin, they are loving Christ, and they are saying, what must we do? So he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and the promise of the Holy Spirit will be yours. Repent and be baptized. Repent, that's an inward thing. 
It shows itself outwards. If, you're at, if your behavior doesn't change, you didn't really repent. But it's an inward thing. Being baptized, on the other hand, it's an outward expression of an inward change. We, in October 31st, we had a baptism here. And it's a physical, it, as you go into the water, you are dying to sin, you are dying to yourself, and when you come out, you are alive in Christ. It is why even countries who are closed, and they allow, they, they, they allow a certain amount of evangelism, they allow a certain amount of Bible reading, they allow a certain amount of Christianity in their cultures. The moment you have a baptism service, all of a sudden, the clamps come down. Because there's something, there's something spiritual about baptism that people understand. Okay, they're not messing around anymore. They're serious about this. If they're willing to say to everybody, I die to me, they will not bow before us. There's a, an example of this early in church history around 360, 356 AD about the Thundering Legion. It's one of the legions in the Roman army. During this time, um, Constantine is ruling the West and another guy is ruling the East. They had an agreement in which the emperor in the East was going to be lenient and accepting of this new Christian tribe, people, cult, whatever you want to say. But he decided, nah, I'd rather just do things my own way and go back to old ways in which they have to worship me, the emperor. And so it goes throughout the ranks, it goes throughout every place that you have to pinch an incense of, uh, uh, throw a pinch of incense into a, into a flame and declare Caesar as Lord to renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're going throughout the ranks in the Thundering Legions. You have 40 people who are, you have 40 men who are committed to Jesus Christ. We know them today as the Holy 40, and it's because they underwent a baptism unlike anybody else. You see, their governor who was in charge of getting them to compliance didn't want to lose them at the same time, couldn't allow this dissension. So he has them in the middle of winter go out onto a frozen pond that's not quite frozen yet, so they're in the water that's freezing, freezing cold. And he tells them to renounce their faith and they can come back in. They'll get their commission back. They won't be discharged in dishonor. And they tell him, they tell him, how many of our brothers fell dying for an earthly king? How can we do any different for our heavenly king? He, he goes further than that. He promises them, he promises them position. He promises them money. And they tell him, how dare you impede our honor? This is my paraphrase of them. We care for riches greater than this earth. And our honor is fading. It'll fade away after we die. But the honor we have in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it'll live forever. How dare you ask us of such things? He then increases the torment by having the youngest mother come onto the banks to try to persuade her son. And he also has these, he has these baths of warm water brought out, telling them, just come back in. All will be forgiven. Just renounce your faith. And they prayed together, Lord, you've called 40 wrestlers to this battle we pray that 40 wrestlers will finish. They stand out there walking to and from, trying to get some kind of warmth into their body. Some have already fallen asleep, the sleep that results in death. Others are lost in prayer. When one of their numbers cracks and runs to the shore, their prayer was, Lord, 40 wrestlers have come. May 40 have the victory. He runs to the bath, and one of the centurions who is there sees this happen and something happens nobody expects. The centurion who was guarding them strips off his clothes and walks into the water and says, I am a Christian. 
and they received a baptism of death but one to eternal life. And in the morning, 40 souls went to their father and their, their prayer was answered that 40 began the fight, 40 would finish it. Today we call them the Holy 40. In verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. Remember, Joel says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter is bringing it around that God calls us himself. We are called and, and we call out. Verses 40 through 41 there is, lets us know that there was more to this sermon. The uh, Holy Spirit in his, uh, in his mercy just gives us the bulletin points. But the sermon went on much, much longer. So if you feel like this sermon is like never ending, um, okay, Peter was worse. <laughs> and Paul was probably worse than Peter. In fact, somebody, one time Peter's preaching and somebody literally falls asleep, falls off of a roof and dies. It's like they're dying to get out of there. And Peter just prays over him. The guy comes back to life. And Peter preaches till, I mean, Paul, sorry, Paul, Paul, Paul. Paul preaches till dawn. So, I mean, dawn's a long ways away, folks. Um, stay awake. Death isn't getting you out of this. Uh, there's more to come. And there's more than this, though, that 3,000 that day are added to their number of those who are being saved. Worship team, would you come up at this time? As the worship team comes up, as we prepare to respond to the message today. Let me read the rest of chapter 2 for you. And they, devout, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This isn't everything, but it's a glimpse of heaven. It's a glimpse of heaven. And it's a glimpse of more to come. I believe that God wants to do that in this church. To add to us day by day of those who are being saved. Now, they weren't actually supposed to create something here. God allows a persecution. They spread out to fulfill the command of Christ to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But let us remember this day to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to Look to the Holy Spirit to empower us to be his witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. Today, if he's not Lord of your life, today is the day of salvation. I said before, we are all guilty of the death of Christ because of our sin. Your sin made it necessary. Even if you were the only person on the face of the earth and all you did was lie, lying is, is so heinous in God's sight it would take the blood of God himself. So you can look at the cross. We know that we are sinners before God, but God offers us eternal life because his great love. He can do this because he is Lord and Christ. Even for those of us who know Jesus Christ today, where are you 
ask the Lord to search you and find you, to see any unclean thing of where you are looking for salvation somewhere else or you are looking for a Lord somewhere else other than him. And finally, he is Lord of the harvest. I said when we began the Pentecost series, if you are baptized in the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues, but you are not engaged in evangelism currently, what use was that? Because that's what it's for. Are you ready to go out into the highways, to the byways, so that his house may be filled? Are you ready to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers and to be one of those workers? Maybe you're not. In the flesh, we're all not. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. For us, that looks like Algona, Kasuth, Iowa, the United States, and to the outermost ends of the world. Worship team, would you please lead us in our final song? Would you please stand as we finish? This is our chance to respond to the message, try cry out to God to ask him to search us, to find where we need to come into obedience in what was preached today. And after this, I will bless you and release.